0: Housing is a lot more than just the place you sleep at night. It's the community that you're part of. It's um, the natural spaces that you exist in. It's the the collective spaces that you're allowed to be part of. That impacts a lot.
1: There's uh, lots of really cool opportunities to pair sustainable design with climate resilience, with you know affordability, because all of these things help create lower operating costs or abilities of not having shocks when...
2: The utility cost spike. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. What would housing look like if community, hospitality, and beauty were at the forefront? These things are sometimes experienced in housing, but rarely priorities in affordable housing, often neglected in lieu of more units or smaller footprints which often doesn't align with Islamic values or supporting communities to flourish. This is the third episode of the five-part Halal Housing Lab podcast series, exploring how we might create community resiliency within affordable housing projects for multi-generational Muslim families in Edmonton, Alberta. The Halal Housing Lab is a collaborative project between our partners at Islamic Family, or IFSA, Another Way, SAS Architecture, Ask for a Better World, and our team at Intelligent Futures. It's funded by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Over the course of the past several months, we've begun working to find new and innovative housing solutions that not only accommodate the needs of multi-generational Muslim families, but can improve the housing market for everyone in Canada. Our communities are constantly changing. Most change is gradual, happening piece by piece over longer periods of time as properties and areas are redeveloped, and as new demographics begin to call a neighbourhood home. But more and more frequently, change is abrupt and unexpected, as in the case of natural disasters, climate change, or a global pandemic. Community resilience is the sustainability of communities to withstand, adapt to, and recover from adverse change to come back stronger than ever. To begin our discussion of community resiliency within the Muslim community, we'll speak to Lina Awad of Islamic Family, an Edmonton-based social service agency that provides a holistic approach to community well-being that's culturally and spiritually sensitive. Lena is the lab's expert in understanding the lived experience of newcomer Muslim families to Edmonton.
0: My name is Lena. I work with Islamic Family as a research and programs director.
2: Lina, I'm wondering if you could describe the concept of service, care, and hospitality in the Islamic faith and how that intersects with how housing could look different in terms of creating community resiliency and really meeting the needs of the families that you work with.
0: Hospitality is huge um, in Islamic tradition. Um, Guests for us are a blessing um, and the service and care for others is, is a form of worship. So that really shows just how integral hospitality is to our faith, to our uh, diverse cultures, to our traditions. And for many Muslims, their their spaces in their homes, regardless of where they come from, um, are designed to allow for that warm hospitality to take place. When we think about that in the context of affordable housing, I think it's important that we design spaces that work for people. Also, um, alongside that, it's important that we rethink how we do our terminology. Um, so the terminology that we use to describe housing, um, that we use around housing, but it's reflective of these rich traditions that we have. Uh, this is probably one of the more exciting parts of the lab for me. Um, just looking, thinking about different ways of arranging a space so that it fits into someone's cultural faith background um, in a way that's also trauma-informed. Um, mm. So how do we make a space have be open, have windows in it, have a lot of sunlight um, have an abundance of of spaces so people can can coexist within it, but still have it be private and still have a woman who wears a hijab be able to to be in her space and have that privacy while having guests over.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's really one of the exciting things uh, about the lab as well. In addition to you know just focusing on you know families that your organization serves and that there's that need in the community that there's the opportunity to hopefully replicate some of these learnings to. You know, really allow different community members. You know, indigenous community members is a great example of just that shift from surviving to thriving. And when we think about affordable housing, it's it often the argument is just you should be thankful for whatever you get. Let's just you know get a roof over somebody's head. And there, I mean, with the the, the pressing need across the country, really, uh, you can see some of the logic in that. But then you just take take a beat and just think about what's it like to actually be in there once you're there. And if you're having to separate from your brothers and sisters and you have to live across the hall and things like that, like it's, yeah, it really puts, puts a point on the fact that we need to explore other ways of building because there are other ways of living, um, than we conventionally build for. Maybe you could speak to the, the journey and, and maybe you have, if you have some, success stories about, uh, you know, your newcomer families, particularly. Um, but just that difference of surviving to thriving, if we just kind of keep with that theme of, you know, you're arriving in a, in a new country, you're are, you've already experienced tremendous hardship to, to arrive. If you're a refugee, that path of, you know, if you're living in a place that allows you to be with your family, your natural support, you're comfortable, you're able to live the way you want in your leading to your best life. Can you maybe talk about the impacts you've seen when folks get properly housed, get the support they need, and then, you know, what that means for our, our communities across the country?
0: The immediate example that comes to mind is with Afghans who are now recently coming in to resettle in Canada. We we noticed a huge demand, an increase in demand for for affordable housing units, uh, for spaces that could adequately house um, a large influx of refugees. The last time we had something like this was when Syrians were coming in. Hmm. And the sector wasn't prepared for it. I think the difference between someone having adequate housing, not just adequate housing that's that's built for their needs, and versus not, has an impact on every aspect of their lives. I it was really shocking to me to hear that most Afghans are going to their doctors' appointments to talk about their housing, talk about the apartments that they're in and the, the lack of housing and how it doesn't work for their needs. Just imagining that little piece and the impact it would have to have proper housing for these populations, for newcomers when they're coming in, just on their ability to, to seek proper health care and, and focus on their other needs, um, on building developing language, on finding um, opportunities for work, um, on connecting with their, with their communities. Um, housing is a lot more than just the place you sleep at night. It's the community that you're part of. It's um, the natural spaces that you exist in. It's the the collective spaces that you're allowed to be part of that impacts a lot
2: yeah so it, i mean there's so many instances of things that uh that we can so easily take for granted and then you just hear a story like that and just shake you out of your comfort or cruise control of how we need to just keep working to make sure that i mean yeah i mean just just think about the difficulty in navigating all the systems to live your life in an entirely new country. I mean, it's just, yeah. And and then if you're not, how if you don't have a comfortable welcoming place to go to at the end of the day, I mean, just, you can see how it just compounds over, over time very quickly.
0: Part of the work that I do is uh, as a sponsorship agreement holder, we support refugees to come to Canada by working with local co-sponsors the investment that we make in that system of, of connecting them to resources beforehand, educating them on what to expect, uh, providing them with tools, uh, empowering them to make their own decisions around their needs um, and their wants before they even come to Canada is huge in, in making sure that they're not just surviving for that year, because that's the focus that most have, is just ensuring people survive, they have their basic needs, it's looking at how they can thrive.
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Do you, do you have any illustrative stories of families that you've worked with that, that have arrived newly in Canada and have been able to get the supports they need and how they're doing these days?
0: Uh, I hope I can tell the story well and do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> we we really shifted the way we do refugee intake this year, um, how we do the sponsorship process overall. We We shifted a lot of our focus that was initially spent on admin work to doing a lot of um, in-person touch points, um, doing home visits, uh, doing intake with them and, and supporting them in their day-to-day needs. A lovely example of how that worked out is usually, you know, in the first week, or the first month of a family coming in, they're, they're just hopping between government places, getting an ID here, a social insurance number there. This person was able to navigate the process within just a few weeks, which is unheard of for so us. usually... Mm of us just send me this paper, get me that paper. This is where you need to go for this. This person was able to navigate it within a few weeks and they were in band. They they just went on a trip, on a road trip with their sponsor. They were visiting our office. They were able to find a job and work and all within a short period of time, just because they received the appropriate supports. They had a system that was designed for their needs. Um, It was designed with their comfort and, and their flourishing at the heart and center of it. So, they were able to navigate those silly, tedious processes that they need, mm. but that, are, that shouldn't be the bulk of their work in that first year. Mm. They were able to focus on building connections. Traditionally, what we see with sponsored refugees in that space is within a few months, within sometimes a few weeks, even, um, that bond between sponsor and refugee begins to break down. Um, and that often results in fractures in mm. families and households and just to think that investing the right resources doing the right legwork beforehand could shift that whole mindset of of how a family unit operates is wonderful.
2: Mhm. Wow. Wow. That's a really encouraging um story and hopefully, you know, if if systems of support can yeah, I mean it's just you talk about human centered design and human centered care and that's that's really what it's all about. That's fantastic. To better understand how the built environment of our cities can support multi-generational Muslim families as they navigate the systems of social support and the challenges of affordable housing, we'll speak to Shafraz Kaba, one of the lab's architects and an expert in creating resiliency within communities.
1: Hi, I'm Shafraz Kaba. I'm a recovering architect that now mostly uh, works through sustainability in terms of how to make buildings uh, and and hopefully our society more responsive to creating a zero carbon world.
2: What are some of the neighborhood characteristics and community supports that we've been, you know, thinking about and talking about when we're talking about successfully housing these multi-generational families?
1: Yeah. The the biggest response is uh shopping for, for you know food and cultural needs. So it's usually the the specialties uh supermarkets or Small shops that have spices, that have ingredients that are catering to you know families from uh, Northern Africa, from families from the Middle East, families that have unique cuisines and, and desire to, to keep cultural traditions. It's a it's an interesting way to try and find the right neighborhoods that kind of align with cer- certain things. What we've heard is a lot of communities want to be near services and shops that are sort of North Central Edmonton, kind of in the North Gates, Castle Downs, even kind of Glengarry neighborhoods. And really they, they focus not only on where they get food and services, but also places of worship. So there's several kind of burgeoning communities around Rosslyn Park and, and others. Again, it, it, it looks to sort of critical mass of where families have located. And um, certain families have also identified some places in South Edmonton. So we're, we're <laughs> trying to find on balance, you know, how, how to bolster that need for uh, families and friends to, to sort of be nearby and nearby to food and near, nearby to the mosque or places they frequent on a regular basis.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's so interesting about affordable and challenging about affordable housing uh, projects often is the the land that's chosen or selected for all kinds of economic reasons doesn't have connection through transit or doesn't have connection to anything but other residential areas, etc. So it's just sort of yet another layer of complexity on the exploration that we're undertaking here.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what we would love to do is see if things can be walkable and, you know, not reliant on a vehicle and and also recognize our public transportation system isn't the most efficient in the world. Mm-hmm. So is there sites on balance that can provide the best possible opportunities? So. We're we're grateful that a lot of the sites we have seen and are analyzing are are nearby transit, but also nearby uh, sort of the shops and amenities people are looking for.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So when we think about the the labatone that we've that that's come up, whether it's in the uh, sustainability, uh, climate responsiveness realm, community. Uh, side is is the idea of re- resilience. I wonder if you could describe what community resilience means to you in the context uh, of this lab.
1: Actually, uh, another great question, because as our climate changes and as weather extremes become a challenge, uh, we'll need to have community resilience helping us deal with those issues. So, for example, Until recently, we've we've never actually had consideration of fresh air refuges, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're getting more and more forest fires in our uh, province, even other province like forest fires from BC are affecting our air quality. We're starting to now think of community buildings having aspects of being a fresh air or a cooling shelter or even in the winter when we have extreme cold heating shelters. Part of our idea of creating community resilience is any project we now think about redeveloping or, or creating, we want to make sure does it have uh, these opportunities to be resilient to uh, some of our climate uh, challenges. Mm-hmm. And it also function again without the need for being Uh, tied to the grid for a period of time like if our electricity grid goes down can there be a switch to renewable solar that's on site that can help power essential equipment like refrigerators and freezers Mm -hmm. that don't spoil the food can we create passive strategies that allow especially residential structures that should be fairly easy to create passive heating as long as the sun is shining, uh, as long as you insulate the building properly. So there's uh, lots of really cool opportunities to pair sustainable design with climate resilience with you know affordability, because all of these things help create lower operating costs or abilities of not having shocks when utility costs spike, whether they're electricity or natural gas.
2: Mm-hmm, for sure. And, and I think what's interesting, too, is as we think about newcomers to Canada, newcomers to Edmonton, trying to build the social infrastructure and the, and the human connections that also build a different kind of resilience in terms of, of responding to those, those uh, crises as well as just daily life. Next, we'll hear from Omar Jakob, servant of servants at Islamic Family, to discuss some of the larger systemic issues emerging from our current housing model here in Canada.
3: My name is Amri Akub. I get to serve the team at Islamic Family. The unintended consequences of the way we set up housing is when we undercut people's ability to find natural supports. So it might be that like you have a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle who can provide childcare, But because you have fractionalized housing, you lose those supports. You, know, you lose some of those inbuilt care environments. You lose some of those corrective mechanisms that help people with mental health. Now, extended families aren't always healthy, but when they are healthy, they are, I think, one of the most incredible resources to support people.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, you know, if you think about resilience in terms of, you know, resilience of family members, if you have that broader support network within a family and then you extend that to a broader community, then all the individuals in it should be a heck of a lot more resilient as they navigate all the challenges of, of life. It's it's interesting when we think about, you know, modeling and supporting through our built environments, ways of living in a more social way, we've got a converging sort of, I guess, generational bookend issues. So we've got an aging population with related health challenges, social isolation, and then, you know, through the pandemic, younger adults, teenagers have shown to be disproportionately affected negatively by the pandemic and the related lockdowns. And so you think about sort of both ends of a of a spectrum of, of housing and, and if we just have single bedrooms where everyone's in a giant bedroom on their devices and there's no design or consideration for hospitality and community and beauty, then that just gets exacerbated. Whereas if we can there's there's these real opportunities to show how to live in a different way that's that's more enriching.
3: Yeah, very much so. I think also there's a really powerful element of reconciliation that's built into the housing conversation. One of the the challenges that we see in Canadian society is, and we've seen this in, in our work, is you'll see people who land in Canada who don't speak English, who within days are picking up on negative stereotypes about Indigenous people. What that tells us is that there's something very foundational about the endemic racism in Canadian society. And that often pits different communities against one another, pits newcomers against indigenous people and scarcity mentality. Housing is an opportunity to bridge that divide. You know, in housing, we see parallels, shared needs, right? A desire to live with aunties and uncles and grandparents and elders. We see a collective mindset around housing rather than an individualized mindset. And we actually have to think about building around that and in building that, we bring communities together and we address reconciliation in a very tacit way that will have generational consequences.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shafraz, I was wondering if you could share any of the more impactful design considerations uncovered through the Halal Housing Lab to date in terms of building more resilient communities, either from the human side or from the built form side that have really stood out to you so far.
1: Well, from, from the human side, I think it's recognizing this is building for the community and for reinforcing how families need to support each other in our world Mm
2: -hmm. rather
1: than being very Western nuclear family, very independent from anyone else type of scenario. Mm -hmm. So I, I think one of the neat things, especially in looking at models for Muslim families, Muslim communities is is how do we create, again, that critical mass of a community where they can live together, but also perhaps cook together? Instead of having amenity spaces like you do in condominiums that are fitness centers, maybe that's a large family gathering space, or maybe that's part of uh, a large community kitchen. So we can enable those larger functions to happen without people having to cram into a a small apartment or a small townhouse to be able to do some things. I think the co-housing model where you share public spaces like the the living area or meeting spaces or kitchen spaces can really help us make them more affordable. Cause frankly the kitchen or any room that has plumbing is the most expensive thing mm-hmm. to build in mm-hmm. residential structures. So the more we can think of how people actually gather in a community sense that helps us out. I also think we talked a little bit about childcare and mm-hmm. how maybe if we develop buildings uh, that have a ground floor opportunity for commercial space, one of those spaces has to be about childcare and, and supporting large families. Childcare, I think is, is such a important part of a community. And it's also, again, a thing that we have great shortage of spaces in our cities too. So how do, how do you foster the idea that the housing development has to look at how childcare works or how, how they might even work with the proximity to schools and the development of those after school and after hours spaces.
2: Recently, the team at Islamic Family moved locations to a new central location right behind McEwen University in downtown Edmonton. This new space was brought to life collaboratively with many of the lab partners, including Shafraz, Sherry Shorten, and the team at Islamic Family to create space for community wellness, connection, and support services within Edmonton's Islamic community. To close the episode off today, we'll hear from Lena to discuss how the themes of community, hospitality, and care were physically built into Islamic Family's community hub, and how this has made a difference to the folks that Islamic Family supports.
0: Yes, uh, a huge difference, actually. So if you think about the way um, social service agencies across the city, across the country even operate, um, settlement agencies even, um, the services are fairly clinical. The spaces are designed in a very clinical way, uh, very confrontational, um, and in the very worst ways, reminiscent of refugee camps. So when we're working with newcomers who are coming in with that refugee-lived experience, um, our spaces that they're spending the majority of their time in for likely several years after coming, um, are reminiscent of the worst parts of their experiences as refugees. Mm. Um, Long lineups, the wait times, the the concept of, you know, you walk in for for a loaf of bread and you get some crumbs and you're asked to work with that. We designed a space that has beauty as an essential in it. And looking at beauty as an essential and not an incidental was, was very important to us. Because I mentioned this earlier, we come from a very rich tradition of hospitality Um, and our hub space. We wanted it to be designed in a way um, where the flow ensures that all our clients feel right at home when they come in. They're not in a social service agency. Uh, There's no no way to tell when you walk into our hub uh, who's a client, who's a staff member, who's just a community member, who's coming there to, to utilize some of the facilities. And in our space, there are nods to both Islamic and indigenous art and architecture. Um in the colorway uh, that we have um, and a lot of the patterns that we're using across the space, a lot of them pay homage to the Canadian Prayer rug, which has it's it has two crescents, two yellow crescents on uh, the sides of it, and it's decorated with the historic al Rashid rooftop. And a lot of the background is is reminiscent of the the four seasons that we have in Edmonton. And in the center of it, there's a uh, which is Roberta's official tree. Um, a lot of those are, are mimicked within our space. And it's it's beautiful to look at. That's the first thing that people are struck with. And that's not an accident. Right. And it, it has shifted the mindsets of how newcomers interact with our space, how clients in general interact with our space. Uh, when in the past, someone would come to us to pick up food hamper, they'd be in and out within a few minutes. Um, what we're noticing now is they're staying, they're lingering, they're leading prayer. And it's... It's wonderful to view, but it's also very unremarkable. So someone comes in for a food hamper, leads prayer, has lunch, uh, has some coffee with a friend, might partake in a board game um, or create something in an art workshop and then leaves for the day. Um, that's the type of experience you want to see for newcomers. And that entire mindset shift just came from space design, entirely from space design, from initially delivering services the way refugee camp would to now having services that have hospitality beauty at the forefront.
2: Mm -hmm. It is pretty, yeah, it's, it's remarkable, but not remarkable. Like you, like you say, when I, when I first walked into the space, it just felt comfortable and welcoming and it's actually more remarkable when you sit in there and think of the comparisons. Okay. So before we, uh, we wrap up, uh, I have a question for you that I didn't prepare you for. Intentionally So um, it's something we ask every guest we have on the podcast, if you could share a city that you love and why you love it.
0: I went to university in the Boston area and I really loved the city because I could walk everywhere. The walkability of it was wonderful. Um, what was more exciting about it was that you could leave a university space and immediately be transported to an entirely different neighborhood mm-hmm. right away It was very diverse in the markup of it, but the walkability of it is something that has always stuck with me. (laughs) You could get anywhere on feet if you want to. Yeah, it's it's a city that I really, really love.
2: Stay tuned for the next installment of the Halal Housing Series, where we'll dive into the question of how an affordable housing development can be built using halal financing that's compliant with Islamic values and leverages untapped generosity within the Muslim community. If you know of any non-traditional affordable housing models that you think might be relevant to the exploration of Halal housing, drop us a note at hello at 360degree.city. We'd love to hear about them. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.